Hi, this is Edwin Crozier of the Franklin Church of Christ in Franklin, Tennessee, and I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. The lesson you're about to hear was presented to the Franklin Church on November 16, 2008. Certainly many Christians at this time are suffering, going through all kinds of difficulties, and yet in Scripture we find the command to rejoice always. How on earth are we supposed to rejoice while suffering? This lesson takes a look at Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, and sees a three-step plan to rejoice even while suffering. I hope this will edify and help you no matter what you're going through. So open your Bible to Romans chapter 5, and let's learn Paul's three-step plan to rejoice while suffering. No doubt, there's a lot of suffering that goes on in our world. Every year, our coast is racked by hurricanes. Tornadoes come through our area. Houses catch fire. It seems that every week we hear about someone new who is diagnosed with cancer or heart disease or some other malady. We all know folks that suffer from chronic illness that just never goes away. Some days it's better, some days it's not. There are folks that have financial troubles, people that get laid off from their jobs. Folks with family struggles, where kids are rebellious, or spouses are unfaithful. And every day we hear on the news how horrible it is in our country. The financial ruin that looms large before us if something can't be done. And we become scared. What's that mean about the companies we work for? What does that mean about our family and where we're going to be in our mortgage payments? All those questions. And then, of course, there's the fear that many have today regarding political and religious persecution that might come up in the future. All kinds of suffering. And yet, even in the midst of all that, we come across verses like Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4, which says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Just think about that. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Not rejoice in the Lord when life is easy. Not rejoice in the Lord when things are going well. Not rejoice in the Lord when I'm not suffering any pain. Rejoice in the Lord always. And Paul wrote that in prison while he suffered. I don't know about you, but I read passages like that, and I have one big question that comes into my mind. How? How? When we're feeling such emotional, mental, physical, spiritual pain and agony, as we go through all kinds of trauma and tribulation and suffering, how? How do we get that done? How do we rejoice in the Lord no matter what is going on? This morning I'd like to share with you a three-step plan to rejoice even while suffering. I think Paul provides us with an answer to this question in Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Paul there says in Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Three times he says that we rejoice. And I think we see three keys in this passage that will help us rejoice. Now, before we get into the meat of this lesson, I do want to explain something. I want to make sure we understand. The purpose of this lesson is not to say that Christians are not allowed to feel any emotion other than joy. It's not to say that if you're mourning or weeping that you're less spiritual. The fact is, the Bible says back in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 4, there is a time to weep and there is a time to mourn. And that is still true today. We know that Romans chapter 12 and verse 15 encourages us as Christians to weep with those who weep. I was talking with Brother Mark Townsley before our assembly this morning. He was talking about times back when, when their son was in the hospital and near death. And the, can you just imagine, some of you don't have to imagine, you've probably been in similar situations. The kind of suffering and emotional turmoil and agony going on there. If you're rejoicing over that, there's something wrong with you. I mean, the fact is, that's a time to weep and mourn. But what we see in Romans chapter 5 is that even in those situations, we still have a reason to rejoice. We have a reason to still have joy no matter how much we suffer. And the weeping and mourning that we do over those things that, that cause us agony and tribulation and suffering cannot overwhelm the joy that we have in the Lord. And so that no matter what we face, whether what we're facing is suffering and agony and causes weeping and mourning, which is perfectly allowed by God and should happen at times, even through that, we can have a joy that, that underlies that and, and overwhelms that at times and allows us to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Before we look at the three-step plan, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we praise You. You are awesome and powerful. You have created the world and You are worthy of blessing and honor. And Father, we worship You and bow down before You in our hearts because we know how worthy You are and how unworthy we are. And we thank You that You have given us Your Word, that we can know how to serve You. We know that You are exalted above all praise and blessing, that, that we can't even possibly remotely say everything about You that is, that is Your due. But Father, we are thankful that You allow us to gather here to edify one another, that You allow us to worship You together, that You allow us to worship You in our own lives personally every day. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us, that no matter what we face, that we can have that underlying joy in your Son, that we can rejoice in Him always. Father, help us to hang on to you no matter what we face. We know that you're with us, and we're thankful for that. God, give us faith and strengthen our faith that we can honor and glorify you in all things. We love you, Father. We thank you so much for loving us. Through your Son we pray. Amen.
In Romans chapter 5, I think the very first thing we see is that if we want to be able to rejoice even while we're suffering, we have to be able to look up to God in faith. Paul demonstrates that the foundation of his joy even while suffering is faith. In verse 1, he says, since we have been justified by faith, through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope. We can't rejoice in the hope of the glory of the Lord. We can't rejoice in our suffering. We can't rejoice because of the reconciliation, as it says in verse 11, if we do not have faith. Now, this idea of faith means that we believe in God. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 points out that if we want to please God, we must believe that He exists. So this... If we want to be able to rejoice in time of suffering, we have to believe that God exists. Now, I find this very interesting because a lot of people take the concept of suffering and claim that means God doesn't exist. But what Paul points out to us is that without faith in God, our suffering becomes meaningless. You see, the world gets it exactly backwards. They have this idea that when I'm going through hardship, that God either doesn't exist or He doesn't care. And that's just not true. That's just not true at all. The fact is, without God, without faith in God, when I look at my suffering, it can cause nothing but despair. It's the fact that I believe in God that provides some kind of meaning to my suffering and allows me to look forward. And we're going to talk about that a little bit in our second point. But I've got to have faith that God exists. But it's more than just believing that God exists. We have to have faith in the God that is described in Scripture. For instance, in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, it doesn't just say that we must believe that God exists. But it says that we must also believe that He rewards those who seek Him. And that reminds me of Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, where Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Let's face it, if I'm going to rejoice even while suffering, I've got to have faith in a God that's got something for me. I've got to have faith in a God who is there and who I know is going to reward me if I hang on to Him, even though I'm suffering right now. I think about 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, Paul said, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. When I'm suffering, if I want to be able to rejoice, I've got to believe in the God who will not allow me to endure more than I can handle. I've got to be able to see that whatever I'm going through, the God in heaven believes I can handle this by His grace, by His strength. I'm not talking about that I can handle it by my own strength. That God, by His work in me, believes I can endure this and He's going to provide the way of escape. I need to remember what it says in Hebrews chapter 12. And I need to have faith in the God that Hebrews chapter 12 describes. In Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 7, it says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We've got to believe in the God who disciplines us for our 
good. It's not necessarily going to be pleasant while he's doing that. And this is not saying that everything we suffer is a punishment, but it does say that everything we go through disciplines us. That is, it, it trains us in righteousness. It helps us develop the disciplines and habits and training of righteousness. We've got to be able to believe in the God that disciplines us for our good. And finally, we've got to believe in the God that's described in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5, where it says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? We've got to believe in the God who is with us, no matter what we're going through, if we want to be able to rejoice. Because we recognize that the God who is with us is not merely standing beside us, but as Philippians chapter 2, and verse 12 and 13 points out, or verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. We believe in the God who is with us, who is working in us for His good pleasure. And because of that, we believe in the God that Paul mentions in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Do you believe in that God? Do you believe in the God who is with us, who works in us, who strengthens us to do all things? Do you believe in the God who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able but provides a way of escape? Do you believe in the God who disciplines you for your good? If you have trouble believing that, and I can understand why you might, if you have trouble believing that, get into your Bible. Read the stories of the ancient faithful. Read about Abraham and Jacob. Read about Moses. Read about David. Read about Job. Read about Daniel. Read about the suffering that they went through and how they believed in the true God who would be with them. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore... Hebrews 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We've got a cloud of witnesses that we can look to who believed in that God, and they made it. They made it through the suffering. And they were able to rejoice. We've got that same God today. Don't we have a great God? Guys, that's the point where you're supposed to say, Amen. Don't we have a great God? I mean, we've got guests in here that need to know we believe that, right? We've got a great God. We need to believe in Him if we're going to be able to rejoice while suffering. But you know what? This belief is more than just believing in God. It's what we've said before. We've got to believe in God, but what else have we got to do? We actually have to believe God. See, faith is not just a believing that God is out there and He exists and He created us and He's with us. Having faith means I also believe that God. When He tells me something, I accept that. I do that. I surrender myself to that. In fact, when Paul talked about this faith, he had already built this statement in chapter 5 on something he'd said back in chapter, 14, or chapter 4 and verse 12. He talked about Abraham. He said to make Abraham the father of the circumcised. This is Romans 4, verse 12. Make Abraham the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but notice this, who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. We need to understand that faith is not just head work. It's also footwork. 
Yes, we have a God who loves us, a God who saves us, a God who delivers us, a God who carries us. But we don't just get to sit down and wait for Him to do all those things. If we're going to believe God and have faith and be able to rejoice, we have to do the footwork. We have to walk in the footsteps of faith. Remember what James chapter 2 and verse 18 says. James chapter 2 and verse 18 says this, Someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you mine by my works. You see that? We can't, we can't declare to have faith if we're not submitting. The fact is, if we're not obeying, we can't demonstrate faith at all. Because if we're not submitting and surrendering to God, we actually don't have faith. Yes, we may mentally assent to some some details about the existence of God, but that's not the faith that God wants. And that's not the faith that allows us to rejoice no matter what we're facing. We've got to have faith. And that means believing God. So God says, look, somebody's upset you, somebody's done something wrong with you, you need to go talk to them. That's what God says. God says, when you know somebody has something against you, you need to go talk to them, you need to go reconcile. You need to make an amends. God says, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Do you believe those things? Why do we do those things? Is it because we're on this mission to figure out all the rules and go through the checklist? Absolutely not. It's because we believe God's way works. And so we're figuring out what God has asked us to do, and we're just doing it. Because we believe Him. And so we surrender to Him. you have trouble believing in that? Do you have trouble believing God? Kind of trouble? Sometimes in our human wisdom, we look at where we are and we think that, no, no, I'm bigger than God. I'm better than God. I know my way will work and I'm going to do things my way. We all struggle with that sometimes. If you struggle with that, think about David. Remember the times he had Saul under his thumb and he could have killed him? He said, who am I to put my hand out against the Lord's anointed? Oh, it looked like he could just take that spear and run it through Saul and all his suffering would end right there. He would no longer have to be running from Saul and his army. He would no longer be an outcast. But David didn't do that. Why, why didn't David do that? Was it just because, oh, I know the rule. Let me check it off. I'm trying to earn my way into heaven. No. It was because David believed God's way works. And he would not stretch out his hand against God's anointed because he knew what God's way was. And he lived and he survived and he became king. See, God's way works. You know, in that moment, all his, all his men were saying, hey, God's delivered him. It, it's, it's a sign from God. Do this thing that even though we know it's against God's law, it's a sign from God. Kill Saul. David said, no, I'm going to do it God's way because I believe God's way works. We've got to not only believe in God, but we've got to believe God. If we want to rejoice, even while we're suffering, we've got to have this foundation. If we don't believe in this God, and if we don't believe Him so much that we just surrender to Him, we're not going to be able to rejoice. We're hardly going to be able to rejoice when things are good, let alone when things are bad. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. That's how we've got to be living if we want to be able to rejoice while suffering. 
But the second thing that Paul points out to us is not only do we need to look up to faith in God, we need to look forward or look ahead to God's goals. Specifically, to God's goals about our suffering. You see, what Paul points out to us is that unlike what most of the people in the world seem to think, suffering is not just done in a vacuum. It's not just there and God's just not doing anything about it. God actually has a purpose for suffering in the world. God allows suffering to take place because He is going to use it in a way that actually benefits us if we will let it. And we need to look ahead to that goal that God has for us. In fact, look in Romans chapter 5 and verse 3. We get to the heart of the matter. Paul says, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. The New American Standard says proven character, and that's important. We'll get back to that in a moment. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul says the re- reason we can rejoice while suffering is because we don't just see the suffering, we see the hope that suffering causes in our lives. We see the goal for which God allows the suffering. You'll notice there's a little process he has here. He says there, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. Now that's weird, isn't it? I don't know about you, but when I, when I first read that, I, I thought, that's backwards. Suffering produces endurance. No, 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 no. Endurance is what helps me get through suffering. So I have to stop and ask, well, why? But that's not, I mean, that's clearly not what Paul says. What Paul clearly says is suffering produces endurance. How does that work? I think there's, there's a perfect illustration for this. It's lifting weights. Anybody ever here ever do some weight training? All right. Yeah. You know, anybody sit back and say, you know, I want to do weight training so that I can lift something that's five pounds. Anybody ever say that? Oh man, I gotta. Well, no, of course not. We're looking for things that are hundred pounds, two hundred pounds. But you know what? Before you can get to the two hundred pounds, what do you gotta be able to lift first? Five pounds, and then ten pounds, and then twenty. You're not going to be able to gain the endurance to get to 200 if you don't first challenge yourself to get to 20. Maybe you're already doing 50. What would happen if all you ever did was go to the weight room and, I mean, you you can do 50 easy, but all you ever do is lift 20. Is that going to help you? It's not going to help you grow. If you want to be able to get to the 200, you've got to challenge yourself. If you can do 50, you've got to start working on 55, right? And what happens is you're pushing, you're straining. It's actually breaking and tearing the muscle fibers. It's causing suffering. But it's the healing that comes from that suffering that actually builds the muscles up and makes them stronger. So how is it that we are able to lift the heavier burdens? How is it that we're able to endure the heavier burdens? It's by going through the lighter burdens that challenge us along the way. And that's what Paul is saying here. Suffering, carrying a burden, helps us with the heavier burdens that are going to come along. I tell you, I I saw a great example. I heard a great example of this this week by one of our shepherds. I mean, you want to talk about suffering. Imagine being in the hospital watching your wife with uh, as her health is fading away. 
Brother Nash looked at me the other day and he started crying. He said, you know, for I think he said 30 years I helped take care of Loretta's mom. He said, I think the reason God had me do that is so I could be ready for this. You see, he understands that. Why do we go through some of these sufferings and burdens? So we can learn endurance. So that we can be prepared. That's what Paul says. Suffering produces endurance. But endurance produces character. Like I said, the New American Standard says proven character. The same word that's used there for character or proven character, it's the idea of tested and tried. Your translation may say experience. The same word is used in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 7 it says, this is the ESV, English Standard Version, so that the tested genuineness, that's the same word where it talks about proven character. Yours may say the proof of your faith. The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says that this testing is the proof of our faith. Now, we probably can misunderstand that very easily because when we hear test, we've talked about this before, but we need to remember it. When we hear test, we think about what happens in school. In school, a teacher hands us a test, and at the end of it, we either pass or fail. They're just trying to figure out what we know to prove whether or not we get to pass. That's not the kind of testing that's talked about here. Here, it's talking about the kind of testing that you do with gold. And what do you do? You put gold in a crucible, then you stick it in the fire. You heat it up in the flame. You cause it to suffer a little bit, and it's going to melt. And then what's going to happen is all the dross and the slag that's inside of it is going to rise to the top. Why do we want to do that? They don't do that just to look at the gold and decide how pure it is and whether or not it's worth anything. They do that to find out how pure it is so they can easily skim off the rest. See, when it talks about proven character, suffering produces endurance, which produces proven character. It's not saying that God's giving us suffering to see if, if we've got enough faith. No, it's saying that God is giving us suffering so that we can learn endurance, so that we can be proven that is, so that all the slag and the dross can rise to the top and we can easily skim it off. That's the testing. That's why God allows us to be tested. Not to see if we're going to pass or fail, but so that we can learn where we're falling short. So that we can learn where the weakness is. So that we can learn where the slag in our life is. And we go into the fire and we suffer and we endure tribulation. And this is what causes us to grow. You see, sadly, sadly, when folks endure tribulation and suffering, they tend to have the idea that that's when God makes exceptions. It's okay that I sought revenge in this case. It's okay that I started cursing. It's okay that I blew up in anger. It's okay that I slandered. Because look at this suffering and tribulation I'm enduring. God will understand. That's not why God allows the suffering. He doesn't allow the suffering to give us an exception. He allows the suffering so that when those things happen, we say, oh, oh, I get it. i got to work on this here. Here's, here's where I need to be working so that I can grow. And when that happens, Paul says it doesn't end there. It provides us with hope. 
You see, because we suffer and we gain that endurance and through that endurance we are proven and our, our weaknesses rise to the top and we start moving those to the side and getting rid of those by the grace and power of God, now we have hope. Now we have hope. And the hope that he talks about was back in verse 2. Hope of the glory of God. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Now, now we have hope. And our hope is not just wishful thinking. Our hope is earnest expectation. We have an earnest expectation of the glory of God. Let's just go ahead and look at that. Romans 8. Romans 8 talks about that glory of God. Romans 8, verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 24 says, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? In this hope we're saved. We're looking forward to that glory that God is going to reveal in us and to us. The glory of the children of God. The glory of God. That's what we're looking for. Why is God allowing us to suffer? Because suffering is what gets us to heaven. Acts 14.22, Paul went around encouraging people, and it says he told them through tribulations we must enter the kingdom. For the longest time, I thought that verse was simply saying, look, in your trek to the kingdom, tribulations will also happen. I don't think that's what Paul was saying. I think what Paul was pointing out is that it's through tribulations that you enter the kingdom. If we don't go through tribulation, if we don't go through suffering, there's no kingdom for us. Because it is the suffering that prompts us to grow. You have a hard time believing that, and I can understand why you might. I want you to think about Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. Paul said, To keep me from being conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The Scripture there points out that Paul, was, Paul had a, a, a problem, a weakness. And that is that he thought that he couldn't get things done with this thorn in the flesh. So he prayed and prayed and prayed, and God said, No, 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 I'm disciplining you here. You've got to learn to rely on my grace. My grace is sufficient. Not your power. Not your power because the stone in the flesh is removed. Whatever hindrance it's causing you, it's not I'm going to take that away and now you'll be able to do things. You've got to learn to rely on my grace completely. And Paul said, I'm learning that lesson. He's growing. The, the slag rose to the top and he was able to skim it off. Proven character. And now he has hope. Hope of the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, when you're suffering, and I don't know what you're suffering, Maybe you've been laid off. Maybe you've got family trouble. Maybe you've got financial struggles. Maybe you're dealing with persecution. Understand this. The reason God allows you to suffer is because if He took your suffering away, you wouldn't grow and you wouldn't go to heaven. God allows suffering so we can go to heaven. 
And we need to praise God for that. It's not pleasant. That's what Hebrews 12 says. But in the end, it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's why it happens. And, and we can rejoice in that. Look ahead to the goal that God has for our suffering. And the third step is look back to God's love. What kind of brings all this together and makes this actually work? What helps us do these first two things is that we look back to God's love. Paul said that our hope does not put us to shame. Your translation may say does not disappoint. You know, a lot of people have a hope that does disappoint. They hope that the president is going to do something that will fix everything. They hope that the Congress will pass some laws that's going to take care of everything. They hope that it won't rain tomorrow and so everything will be wonderful. They hope that their 401k is going to be okay in a couple of years. All those hopes disappoint, but our hope does not disappoint. Why? Because our hope is founded on the sure promise of God. There in Romans chapter 5 and verse 11, it says, More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We can rejoice no matter what goes on in our lives because we know that the greatest problem that is going to eventually cause the greatest amount of suffering for the greatest amount of people is our sin. And God's already dealt with that one. God may not have found you a job this week, but God has already taken away your sins. God may not have healed your loved one yet this week, but God has already taken away your sins. God may not have taken away the pain you feel in your body yet, but God has already taken away your sins. And everything else we're suffering, we can look at and say, this too shall pass. But if God doesn't take away your sins, that's going to cause suffering that will never pass. We have been reconciled. The greatest problem we face, God has taken care of. Back up to what Paul said about the hope. Hope does not put us to shame in verse 5 because God, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I, I don't believe that that's saying that through some miraculous operation of the Holy Spirit in our heart, we understand this is true. Because he goes on to say, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. I think what he's saying is the love of God has been outpoured by the Holy Spirit's revelation of what Jesus did for us. Notice what he did. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, verse 7, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, it's hard to find a distinction between the righteous person there and the good person, but if there is a difference, I've heard Bill Hall explain, and it sounds good to me, I just thought I'd share it with you. The righteous person would be the kind of person that makes sure everybody gets what is their due. The good person is the one who goes above and beyond the call of duty to perform goodness to other people. Let me give you just a very simple illustration. The righteous person is the guy who at a restaurant, when the bill comes, pulls out his little tip calculator and figures out what 18% or whatever the going percentage rate is. It's, okay, you know, wow, it's, uh, I bought a dollar, so I'm giving him 18 cents as a tip. That's the righteous person because that's what's due. That's what our custom is, and we're going to give that to him, and that's righteousness. That's, what the, that's what's due. The good person says, man, you know, I bet this waiter or waitress doesn't make much money. We've been here twice as long as everybody else. I know I only bought $5 worth of stuff, but you know what? I'm going to go ahead and give them a $5 tip. 
That's the good person who goes above and beyond the call of duty. Now, neither one of those is a sinner. Both of those are right. But the problem is, we weren't either one of those people. He says, we're not the righteous. Now, now you're not going to find somebody who's going to die for those who are certain to give everybody what's their due. You might sometimes find somebody who will die for the person who goes above and beyond the call of beauty and goodness. But who are you going to find that's going to die for wicked, evil sinners? Jesus. That's who you're going to find. That's exactly what He did. He died for us while we were ungodly. He died for us while we were still sinners. And no matter what we suffer, nothing will change that. So hang on in faith. Persecution can begin, and it's not going to change the fact that Jesus has died for us to reconcile us. But further, notice what it says in verse 9 and 10. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. Paul's point there is, if in order to reconcile us, God would go to the extent of sacrificing His Son, how much more right now on in the midst of His suffering will God not make sure to help me get through it? Back before I was reconciled to Him, He sent His Son to die for me. Now that I am reconciled, what is He not going to do to help me make it? That gets us right back to the beginning where we talked about having faith in a God who won't allow us to endure more than we can handle and always provides the way of escape. What an amazing God we have. Amen? God who loves us. God who cares for us. And He cares for us too much to make life easy. We've all seen how making life easy causes too many problems for people. God loves us too much to do that. And so even while we're mourning and weeping because of something we're suffering, we can still rejoice because we have faith in the one true God who has plans for us and is going to use what we're going through to get us to heaven. And we know He's going to do that because we can look back and see what He's already done, sending His Son to die for us. Can you all rejoice in that, God? That's, that's another time to say amen. Can you all rejoice in that, God? Amen. Yeah. I hope that was beneficial and edifying. Most of all, I hope that it glorified God. Let's remember what we learned. If we want to rejoice while suffering, we must, one, look up in faith to God, two, look ahead to God's goals, and three, look back to God's love. If you have any questions or spiritual needs, we would love to be of assistance to you. Please feel free to give us a call at 615-794-2359, or you may contact us through our website, franklinchurchofchrist.com. 
If you're ever in the Middle Tennessee area, we'd love to meet you face-to-face. Please feel free to stop by for any of our classes or assemblies. You can find out our schedule and directions to our meeting location at our website. Again, that's franklinchurchofchrist.com. We look forward to meeting you. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. But more importantly, may you richly bless God.